to Research Pages, a podcast all about supporting academic research. I'm Neve Page, a librarian at the University of Cambridge. And I'm Andrew Page, a computer scientist from the Quadrum Institute. We are both information professionals supporting research, but coming from very different angles. We hope you enjoy listening. In today's podcast, we're going to be talking about Dora. Now, I don't really know too much about Dora. I've heard it's important, and I've heard it's also not an explorer. <laughs> so, Neve, can you tell me a little bit more about Dora? Sure. So, Dora is the San Francisco Declaration on Research Assessment, and basically, what it boils down to is that we need to stop using metrics inappropriately as a measure of research. What do you mean by metrics? So, for example, lots of people, if they see in a in a CV that somebody's got a nature paper. They'll say, oh, that's a high impact journal. They must be writing good research. So they're using the impact level of the journal as a shorthand for the quality of the research. So like this quick filter to see, is this a good paper or a bad paper? Absolutely. Yeah. And of course, the problem with that is that sometimes bad bad research gets into high profile journals. Like, and they get retracted more, don't they? They do. Absolutely. So this, so this is... It's not an appropriate way of making decisions about recruitment, promotion, anything to do with research careers. And it was never designed for that anyway. Well, actually, today I was talking to an academic, senior academic, and they had a quick flick through, you know, all of the journals that my articles are published in. And they were like, oh, you know, that's that's in a, like a nature stable paper and, you know, so and so. Just at a quick glance, using that as a measure of quality. Yeah, and I completely understand why. I mean, somebody who's written a lot of uh, papers, if you're trying to get a feel just by looking at a CV of people's quality, I absolutely understand why people look for shorthands. The problem is that this this isn't an accurate way of measuring. That's odd, because like I've seen graphs where an institution will count up all of their you know top 10 glamour journal papers and mm. then compare it to numbered glamour papers from other institutions and say we're better than them yeah so the idea is that with dora we're trying to get away from that so how do we get away from it i mean we need some kind of measure of what's good what's bad what's not i think one of the things we need to do is to assess more holistically and i suppose also on grants you pop down things like what impact have they actually had? You know, has this software been used to save the world or has it been recommended for an award or published in a, a government uh, paper, white paper? Exactly. So it's looking at why the research is important and worth doing and not just that other researchers thought that the journal it was in had content that was worth citing. But bearing in mind, we're not even talking about article level metrics here. We're talking about the journal level. And some articles within those journals will be extremely well cited. Most of the ones that are well cited, it will be for good reasons. Some of them that are well cited will be for really bad reasons because the research was so flawed that loads of people were writing in to correct it. That's reasonable. Yeah. So the idea is that you look at the number of citations of different articles and you average things out in some way. And you come up with a figure for each journal. So the interesting thing is that there are different sets of journal impact factors. Oh. So, (laughs) yes, we think we know how they work, but they're both proprietary. One of them is Thomson Reuters, the other is Elsevier. Um, And they don't agree? 
no, they're different numbers. But this is the whole, this is one of the big problems. It was never intended for measuring research quality. It was intended as a way of helping us decide what journals were uh, getting enough attention. It's got nothing to do with the quality of the research itself. So actually, that, that reminds me, I've seen some cases where it seems that people are gaming the system. Yeah. So I've seen a journal where they publish 12 articles a year Mm -hmm. and it has a reasonable impact factor. It's like three or four. And then the main journal for the field publishes every single month about Hmm. two dozen articles. So over a year, it's it's a few hundred. And that has a much, much lower impact factor. Yeah, so they're creaming things up to make it uh, more, more impressive looking. Yeah. The other thing is that the data that are used to come up with the journal impact factor are not transparent or openly available. They're, they're devised by companies. And also you have to pay money usually. Yeah, yeah, exactly. They're behind a paywall. Actually, it, it's one of the things that's so interesting. Scientists in particular get so attached to these metrics because they see it as scientific proof that something is good or bad, it seems to me. When actually they can't check the methodology. So they really shouldn't be falling for this. To be honest, I mean, I know myself, if I look on, say, a proprietary system like Scopus, and then I look at Google Scholar, whichever number gives me the highest citation count (laughs) for my papers, I'll take it. No matter how inaccurate uh, one is over the other. Focusing too much on the title of the journal, it takes away from the range of research outputs that there are. I mean, there's far more things than articles these days. People are publishing data sets, they're publishing technical reports, the software even that's been written. I know that you publish that frequently. Um, If you just focus on journal articles, then you're also limiting the type of um, research output that you're assessing. So how did Dora come about? So back in 2012, a group of editors and publishers got together and came up with this declaration that says that this has to change and came up with some recommendations for a better approach to research assessments. So these recommendations were split up into ones for funding agencies, ones for publishers, some for research organisations, um, some for the organisations that actually supply metrics and recommendations for the researchers themselves. So a bit for everyone. Yeah, exactly. Okay, so how, as an academic, how does it impact me? We know that researchers use the journal title as shorthand all the time for the quality of research. Yep. You need to break that cycle. What? <laughs> how on earth, if I have a huge list of papers, maybe, hmm. uh, I don't know, I'm hiring someone or I have to go through someone else's papers for a grant, how am I actually meant to know what is a good paper, what's a bad paper? Radical as it sounds, you could look at the paper themselves. I realise you can't do that for I may not have access to the papers, maybe behind a paywall. Well, isn't that a good reason for people to make it openly available? True. I suppose (laughs) if you can't access it, then you can't uh, review it. That's right. So suggestion that one of the academics in our university made and I think it makes perfect sense, is that the authors should be asked to identify, say, four of their best as part of any recruitment process, any promotions process, whatever. And then the that means that whoever's doing the assessment has a more concise list to actually look at. And that's realistic. I mean, if you're shortlisting, you should have time to skim four papers. I suppose like with the ref, you can only submit six per academic 
Absolutely. And it's about the quality of the selected items. It's not about weighing the volume of papers. That's what happens when you get further down your career. It is literally how many pages of uh, of publications are there for this person. Which is why people went through a phase of publishing the minimum publishable unit. Yeah, I mean, in bioinformatics, we have the equivalent of... Um, used to be called genome announcements, but basically you could publish every single little genome, bacterial genome you, you create. Mm. And of course, nowadays you can do them so quickly, you can churn them out like... And then that's just making future research really difficult, having to wade through that volume. But sometimes you do need volume, the long tail of research. And actually, there's a lot of developments in text and data mining that are really exciting and would help with wading through all of that. So, of course, there is a future for, for all of that data to be shared as well. Absolutely. But as a way of measuring people's research quality, volume is not going to measure quality necessarily. Yeah, a bit about it. <laughs> I mean, if you have one really good paper on your mm. CV and that's it, yeah, you don't have a track record. Whereas if you have... A range of papers, you know, that shows sustained career development and sustained um, good science. Why are people signing up to DORA? I know my own institution is talking about doing it now. It's really hard to argue with the principle that you should assess people's research based on the research itself rather than on a proxy. Um, There's growing pressure, especially from early career researchers and researchers in fields that don't rely so much on specific journal titles and preferred the archive, for example, um, to try and shift how all of this works. And there's also support from the research funders for changing how we approach this. So there's overall support from everyone at every level? In principle. We also know of examples where people have signed DORA and then maybe haven't done much about it afterwards, maybe didn't quite know what they were letting themselves in for because nobody's going to pretend that this is an easy change. It involves completely changing how researchers think about how to evaluate another researcher's work. So like an institution signing Dora and then putting in job ads saying you must have nature and science papers. Exactly like that. And there was a great example of that recently, which was incredibly embarrassing both for the researcher and for the institution particularly since the uh, the academic didn't have any of those papers themselves. Well, that, that yeah. I'm I'm not going to say what I'm thinking about that. <laughs> okay, so you know, the the system has changed. Everyone has signed Dora. So what do we actually need to do on the ground? I'm going to turn that one back on you because you actually are a researcher. I'm a librarian. I would love to know from you what you think would help to change this culture. How could this be changed? It's interesting. I still need a quick way of evaluating large numbers of papers. So it might be how many times has paper been cited? Um, does it have an old metric score? What's the h-index of a person? Am I allowed to use those things? So the interesting thing about Dora is it's not saying do not use metrics. It's saying do not use metrics inappropriately. So I can use them sometimes, you're saying, if I use them with some wisdom behind it. I think that's what it boils down to. It's knowing the pros and cons of the tool that you're using, making informed decisions about that, and considering whether 
what you're doing is actually the best quality so, or the best way to approach this problem. So for example, if you're deciding who to promote and you get you basically weigh the papers that they've published and then spot check for a few natures in there, great. What if they weren't the first author for any of those papers? That becomes a lot more difficult then because then you have to delve into like the author contributions and that's the last thing anyone thinks about, particularly the person who writes the paper is probably like, well, I did all the work and these are just hangers on. Exactly. So if you're focusing, if you're reading a CV and you're focusing on the list of papers at the end and you see lots of natures in there and actually that person didn't make a major contribution to any of those papers. One of 50 authors. Exactly. What are you measuring? You're measuring how many mates that person has that can publish in nature. True. But some of these very big research projects do require the work of a lot of people. They do. And I'm not taking away from that at all. The point is that in order to work out what is an appropriate metric, you need to start from what am I trying to achieve here? So for example, I want to recruit the best programmer in bioinformatics to come work for me in Quadrum. Are you going to recruit the best programmer by looking at what publications they've got? No, I would go to, say, their GitHub page, if mm-hmm. they have one. Yeah. And I would see that as more like a portfolio, like an artist. Yeah. You would go through their code. You'd look at different pieces of work that they've actually produced and you'd evaluate it yourself. You'd say, well, this is well-structured. It's got tests. It's got... Um, an easy way to run it and I suppose yeah with, with a paper as well if you have the time to read through lots and lots of papers but you know being realistic you may only be able to spot check a few read them and you know you can very quickly get a sense of what it is as long as it's not a 30 page paper you can't then go and review every single person's paper you know again and again and again no of course and there's different levels of review as well I mean you can read a paper because you're just getting a gist of it in the same way as when you're assessing the code you're not going through it with a fine tooth comb you just mentioned you're looking at how well it's structured you're presumably spot checking bits you're not reading the code from start to finish you can do that with articles surely surely what you've just described is what researchers could do in other fields absolutely okay you've convinced me now (laughs) but how do we convince everyone else well i mean Thinking back only a few weeks, I was told for the ref, a four-star paper <laughs> is one that has an impact factor, appears in a journal, an impact factor above 10. A three-star is above five. And then a two-star is somewhere down below. Please tell me that wasn't someone senior. Absolutely. Oh, God. <laughs> so the ref explicitly does not use impact factors in its decision-making. Yeah, I heard actually from someone who was on one of these ref panels that they actually go and read all the papers. Yes, exactly. They are supposed to actually read all the papers. Yes. I thought they'd be like, oh yeah, wink, wink, we read all the papers. But no, they actually go and read them. Yes. Or at least one person on the panel does. Yes, exactly. Because you actually have to measure it on the article's quality, not on the title of the journal that it was in. Which is why they only do it every five years. Or is it six? Six years. God. Yeah. (laughs) that's such a big undertaking yeah it really is okay so for funding agencies um i guess they're already doing this by making their panels read the papers 
and for getting uh, researchers to actually go in and put you know a selection of their papers and what the impact is yeah absolutely and also there's recently we talked about plan s coalition s came up with this plan well this set of principles for how we get to open access um, and as part of that they advocated getting institutions to sign dora and a number of research funders including the welcome trust signed up to plan s and within that said they were going to be requiring that any institutions wanting to apply for funding from them must have signed dora it sounds like this is like one big coherent plan well <laughs> uh, yeah i think plan is generous I mean, it's kind of evolving in a general direction over time. I think all of us need to keep raising our awareness of this, making sure that we're keeping up with the changes that are coming. But I am really excited by how much the momentum is is moving forward now. What does Dora then mean for institutions like universities and institutes like the one I work for? I think they need to be much more specific about how they reach the hiring decisions that they reach. It shouldn't just be promotion because you've publish papers in two high-impact journals. It should be based on a range of measures that are appropriate to the role. So I've heard in some institutions, there's requirements for people to publish like two four-star papers or two three-star papers, you know, within like four years, five years to make them more returnable. Mm-hmm. Is that okay? I don't see a problem with that. I suppose the risk is around how they're deciding what is three or four-star well, obviously in a good journal, you know, with a high impact factor. <laughs> but anyway, seriously, um, we have to consider it in our hiring decisions and be just much more aware that we can't just blindly say this is a science paper or a nature paper and move on from there. Yeah, exactly. And focusing on the fact that the content of the paper is much more important than the publication's metrics. I think as well that institutions need to do a lot to raise awareness of this because that example you mentioned earlier on, an institution had signed DORA but one of its researchers clearly didn't know or didn't understand it because what they then advertised completely breached it. So that means that the anybody hiring needs to know what the rules are. It needs to be built into the hiring procedures Even the HR administrators that maybe are putting the jobs onto the websites should be checking for certain alarm bells. When it comes to publishers, what do publishers have to do? Because I'd imagine it's quite different from academics and uh, research institutions. Yes. So what Dora is asking them to do is to reduce the emphasis that they put on the impact factor as a promotional tool. So to stop using it as a way to attract authors and a way to attract librarians, you can easily see that some publishers are going to be less keen to give up things like that. Particularly if they have a high impact factor. But I do know the Microbial Society, which is where I publish sometimes, uh, has gotten rid of all impact factors and they just disavowed them totally, even though technically you can go and look them up because these uh, proprietary... uh, aggregators or I don't know what to call them platforms um, will still pop them out even if the journals don't recognize them and are fundamentally opposed to them. Yeah that's absolutely right and actually that's a really good example of how publishers are being asked to deal with this. Although as soon as a particular new journal that I'm in um, had an impact factor I went and looked it up. (laughs) 
It's because you've been trained. <laughs> but the other thing they can do is make sure that there's a range of article level metrics alongside the journal based ones. So I noticed that um, journals are frequently asking for author contributions to be listed in each paper, whereas previously they didn't. Yes, and actually that is another really positive one because it helps anybody trying to assess a researcher's contribution to identify what they actually did in this paper. Are they just one of the 50 names that follows the main author or did they contribute something substantial? Because at the moment... Unless you're first or last author in a lot of fields, there's absolutely no indication of how much or how little you did. And you could have done a substantial amount, actually. Absolutely. You might be second, third or fourth and have done quite a bit of work. Mm -hmm. But I know that uh, as a corresponding author, it's a good way of filtering out some people who maybe did a very tiny amount of work. When you email me, say, could you tell me what your contribution is to this paper? And then, you know, sometimes I'll drop out. I like that. One thing that I love myself is data and particularly pulling in vast amounts of data. So I would love it if Google Scholar had some kind of API that I could pull in all the article level metrics like citation counts and h-indexes and different people and journal impact factors. But are these all available in some way? No, they're not actually. It's Google explicitly does not allow institutions to work with that data at all. I, I, think can, I you... love old metric, for example, because yes. it, it not only gives you the score, but it breaks it down and says this many people sat on men or added to their Mendeley uh, reading list and yes. this many people put it on Twitter. And and it goes one better. It even enables you to say, oh, it's been blogged about or it's been in this news source. And then you can follow that link through and actually read what somebody said about it. And I remember showing Altmetric to one of our academics and he discovered that he had a lot more coverage of a particular paper than he had any idea of. Although I have found it is one of these metrics you can game easily. Of course it is. If you tweet it a lot, then you'll see. But at least they're open about it so that if somebody says, this has had all this attention on Twitter, then the person that wants to find out more can just go into Altmetric and look at what was said and see how much of it is, oh, my brother published this paper, isn't it wonderful? Please retweet and say something nice about it. So it's all open and transparent versus impact factors, which are just closed in a black box, magic number. Exactly. And of course, I've noticed that not all journals are indexed by these different services that do the impact factors. Yeah, no, they're not. So there, there's a limit to how many journals those kinds of databases can index, especially when they're trying to focus on what they consider to be proper journals and exclude ones that are created just to spin money. I realise that's a contradiction in terms of... I suppose a lot of smaller journals, well, society journals may not be in there as well. So they really should be. They should be asking to be indexed, but there are certain criteria that have to be met. I don't know those criteria in detail. I'd have to look them up. Yeah, well, I know certainly say for things like PubMed, the mm-hmm. criteria are quite strict. You have to have a certain number of publications within a certain time frame, mm-hmm. and you can only apply once in a year, and then you have to wait. And mm-hmm. So they certainly have a high barrier for entry, but obviously they're a, a publicly funded organisation. Well, and there's a lot of work to be done then to get those sy- titles added to their systems. And 
I, I, as I say, I don't know enough about the detail to talk more about that. It doesn't surprise me that there's a high bar for some of them. So one thing that really bugs me is I've written a few papers, but people have cited review papers instead of mm-hmm. my original paper. And I understand that's Endora. So could you tell me a bit more about that? Yes. So the idea is that if somebody writes a review paper to say, here's all the literature that was written about microbial genomics, for example, then somebody reading that review paper will cite that, as you say, rather than go citing each of the individual papers that were mentioned within it. The problem with that is that the credit in terms of metrics isn't reaching the person that did the original research. I mean, the actual uh, systematic review is a really important piece of research in its own right. But if you, as an author, want to talk about a specific finding that you've discovered from the review, really, when it comes to citing that, you should go back to the original paper for a number of reasons. One is to make sure that actually the way it's been interpreted in the review paper is accurate. It's completely possible that the meaning was twisted in some way. So it's actually just good research practice to go back to the original. And secondly, so that the author that did that original piece of work gets the credit for that piece of work. Obviously, if you want to give credit to the person that did the systematic review, that's a different thing. You will will need to cite that paper as well. Okay, so then it comes down to researchers like me I mean, we've talked about uh, hiring and that kind of thing. Is there anything else that I need to think about? So talked about the citing primary literature instead of the review papers as well. The other thing that you could do is to make sure that you're using the range of metrics in your own applications for, for jobs or for promotions and so on. And you can be part of the solution by challenging bad practice when you see it. Okay, so I'm going to delete all the impact factor uh, numbers from my CV now, which I have to update. That sounds good. That's a really good first step. And I'll put in something better. And how are you going to get your organization on board with Dora? Well, I know that some of the other organizations that are on the same campus are also going to, or thinking about sending Dora. And I'm definitely pushing for it. And I know I have some uh, supporters internally as well. So hopefully it'll come about. But of course, I think maybe it's my responsibility as academic on a day-to-day basis to make sure that in my normal working practices and on committees and on hiring panels that I make sure to apply all that knowledge. Fantastic. Absolutely. (laughs) Anyway, thank you very much for uh, telling me about Dora Neve, And uh, this has been a very enjoyable podcast. Thank you for listening to Research Pages. Please rate and subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify or whatever platform you use. The views expressed in this podcast are our own opinions and do not represent the views of the University of Cambridge or the Quadrum Institute.